You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, recently I had a conversation with one of my buddies. He's kind of a a truck nut, a car nut, and he told me that Interstate Batteries makes, from a technical standpoint, some of the best car batteries on the market period hands down not only that but they have thousands of retail locations all over the united states so stop in to a local retail store ask the guy who works there about their car batteries and hell you might as well put one in if they're the best in the business so interstatebatteries.com is their website go there find out more information about the culture of the company the batteries that these guys carry or just stop into a, a local retail store interstate batteries outrageously dependable welcome to the land and legacy podcast we're your hosts adam keith and matt die this is your number one resource for all things land if you're interested in conservation habitat management hunting strategy and rural real estate this is the podcast for you <laughs> Right, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. This is Matt Dye, and um, gosh, we've got some cool episodes here getting ready to drop this week as well as uh, the next few weeks, but I'm especially excited about this podcast because um, it's kind of a quick review of a recent um, consulting trip out east, specifically in um, the Virginia, Maryland area. But this podcast will definitely have a, a Maryland focus um, in and around the Chesapeake Bay region. And just some stuff that we don't talk a ton about. Um, we sit down with, with two clients, um, Daniel Adams and Kevin Waring. Both of them have unique experiences and are utilizing the land in fascinating ways. Um, things that are very nature and family oriented, a nature centered. And, um, you know, it, it just goes right in line with the land and legacy, um, methodology as well as, um, just the way that we, 
we want to show the appreciation for the land. And um, it's neat because we don't talk about these these factors that much. And so it's only fitting that we have them back on um, since, we, since we've been working with them, some of the client success as well as just, the, again, the other ways that both them are utilizing the land. So we're going to chat about that today and hope that you guys um, enjoy the process, enjoy learning about something new, and um, we'll just kind of follow along with, with their success here on the property. And, you know, Maryland, <laughs> it's it's a sleeper state from a standpoint of, one, just whitetail hunting. There are some fantastic deer in and around Maryland. Maryland, especially in southern Maryland, is very, very crop heavy. And uh, people often forget about that, I think, based on its proximity to um, the nation's capital. But uh, certainly should not be overlooked. There are some fantastic whitetail hunting opportunities, as well as waterfowl opportunities. Um, pretty good number of turkeys. And then all the fishing that you could want. Um, so, Fantastic area, fantastic state. So love, love doing this podcast and sharing all the different um, ways that you can recreate, enjoy the land, and uh, work the land, feed your family off the land. Hint, hint, nod, nod, and enjoy just time outside um, with with the family in nature because um, that's what this is all about. So before we get into the first interview with Kevin, want to take a quick moment. And thank Pure Air Natives. They are they are one of the partners that makes this podcast possible. And uh, if you are into planting native species, we're talking native grasses, we're talking pollinators, we're talking anything native. And you guys know how much we love native plantings and managing native plant communities check them out, purenatives.com. They have an extremely professional staff who can help you to a T nail down blends. You'll make sure your your site preparation is, is key. Make sure it's ready to rock and roll so that you will have the most success when planting natives. So be sure to check out purenatives.com. And that ties in perfectly with our first interviewee. Kevin Warren has had success, this is year two, success of planting natives. And he worked alongside of Pure Air Natives to help get that um, blend put together um, specifically for his site. He worked with um, a gentleman named Trevor over there. So um, they put it together and um, worked cohesively. And guys, this is year two. So remember, we've talked about this in the past with Justin Adams on the podcast, but year one, they sleep, year two, they creep, year three, they leap. So this is a long-term process, but the success that he has seen so far in this planting is incredible. And that, that's, a, that's a tribute to selecting the right species, as well as the right site prep and then maintenance to follow through. And that seems maybe like a big undertaking, but guys do it. Make sure that the, the, the staff is out there to help you. Make sure you're doing the right stuff. Um, Pure Air Natives is a great resource to make sure that you're going to have success with planting native species just like Kevin has. So without further ado, let's hear from Kevin himself. All right, Kevin, are you there? Yep, here. 
Alrighty, sir. You are a returning guest to the podcast. It's been probably a year or more, I guess, since you were on the podcast last. You did you did um, a conversation with Adam, and um, we're, we're pleased and happy to have you back on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about uh, kind of your situation, where you're from, um, and uh, the farm that you're working right now. Sure. So, again, my name is Kevin Waring. I'm out here in the mid-Atlantic in Maryland. Um, on the western side of the Chesapeake Bay in what we call Southern Maryland. Um, family farm here. We raise, you know, corn, soybeans, milo, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, a year ago, like I said, reached out to you trying to get a plan together to sort of enhance um, our farm from a wildlife perspective, from a hunting perspective, really just from a get outside and enjoy nature perspective. And that was, I guess, last January. And, um, you know, we, we've had some pretty good success starting to see some reactions to what we've done and looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, then, and it's a perfect timing because, um, I was just out in your area, had the pleasure of working with, um, Daniel Adams, who you guys will hear on the podcast this week as well. Um, but, through this whole connection and being right back in the area, you and Daniel were able to connect and meet each other. Um, and since I was there in the area, you asked if I could stop back by your place because you had some success to share. Um, that was very, very visual. Um, it's something that I don't get to see that often is coming back to some of these properties that, that we work and um, being able to monitor those success and, and allow you guys, clients, to be able to talk about um, the success that they've had and, and specifically talking about planting native seeds and watching them develop over the course of two growing seasons. And so um, as you talk there, this property, a decent component of it um, size-wise or ratio is open ag land. And, and one of the... Um, recommendations was right off the bat we've got different wood blocks and we've got different um you know areas of the farm that we need to connect better um not only connect better for the wildlife aspect but then also give you and your family who are hunting the property um, more of a screen to maneuver around the farm itself so um as you guys can imagine we suggested um, some native plantings, and that's what we want to talk about because not every day are people going forward and working those you know, long-term plantings. A lot of times we'll find people who want to go kind of the, the shorter route, the annual route for screening cover. Um, but your your mindset, Kevin, and what you wanted to accomplish on the farm it was 100% way better to to go natives and you've got again some successes to share um, but I just want to give you a chance to be able to talk about what it is that you've seen so far um, because you know it, it, if you look at it side by side comparison this isn't crop farming right you're you've been used to and and your family made a living you know every year April May time frame to put seed in the ground and by the end of the summer or early fall, you're harvesting that seed like that's your crop and you're, and you're yielding success in one short growing season. But knowing and having a wildlife plant of mine and planting these natives, 
that wasn't going to be the case. And same thing with food plots. If you're only planting experiences, um, just food plots, you typically plant something, put it in the ground, and are seeing results almost immediately. But that's not the case with planting natives. So this is this is the time frame. If, if you've ever wondered about planting natives to allow Kevin to encourage you and, and push you in the direction of going forth and um, making that making that final decision to, to plant them because what what I saw on the property, Kevin, was fantastic. And this is again only year two from when you actually um, put the seed in the ground. So or growing season two since you put the seed in the ground. So I'll be quiet and let you kind of roll through um, the planting times and, and kind of break down um, what that was and, and how we got to this point. Let's say. Yeah, no. So, um, I guess where do I start? So, I mean, I think where, when we last talked on the podcast, right? So some of the objectives were wildlife and then, you know, we do have some, some riparian buffer areas that Mm -hmm. we've established on the farm. Right. And I guess maybe to use them as a, a contrast to what we've achieved here. Right. So, um, you know, while the wildlife have used those areas, right, we elected to kind of plant those areas in kind of your traditional cool season grasses like orchard grass and you know a lot of natives have come through over the course of you know eight to ten years now going on right but um you know when you look at what that looks like now here in june versus what we've planted right it's just um mind-blowingly different as far as the amount of area on the ground the dirt on the ground where you know rabbits quail um, turkeys, you know, that sort of thing can move, right? So, Absolutely. Um, so, and, so re- real I quick, get, I guess I want to break that down. You had previously um, been enrolled, the farm had been enrolled in these riparian areas um, or, or, you know, crop, crop buffers around the edges of these fields. Yeah. And that was enrolled in a program. So immediately, you know, upon, let's say, my arrival, those were you know, under contract and couldn't be changed or manipulated um, right out of the gate. Now we're getting to a time frame to that, that CRP contract or that, that contract um, is lifting or getting closer to lifting. And um, you kind of have a direction of where you want to go based on the results that you've seen from the native planting versus the cool season areas that are um, spread throughout the farm in, in, in different areas. But the freedom you'll have in the next couple of years is going to be fantastic for those areas too. Yeah, yeah. So I guess just maybe to break it down for everybody, uh, we after the consult with you, we sort of planned about four acres of planning. Um, some of that was a sort of a more of a meadow prairie mix with mm-hmm. kind of forbs and flowers. And then other sections, as you mentioned, were kind of more grass heavy because they were screens along entrance areas as well as just um, trying to ink the density of cover along the wood line so that you know a, a deer or something coming out to an edge couldn't see through it so that, sure. that was sort of the planting by design so we ended up putting down about six pounds of seed an acre and one of the things i guess maybe useful for someone who hasn't done this before is you know working closely with pure natives to design the seed mix um, as well as talk about how to plant. So sure. um, I didn't realize it, but, you know, sometimes with this light, fluffy seed, you know, you have to add a carrier to it. So we mm-hmm. added about four pounds an acre of peat moss. 
and and so we mixed the seed together used a a no-till drill that had a fluffy box on it and then you know we got to drilling the seed in and so after the seeds in the ground you know just like most people in the country right now who are farming you know you pray for rain (laughs) so we had a, a decent you know some decent rains after it and had some pretty good germination right off the bat like uh if i remember there was partridge pea and yes. a couple other yep. ones that were very notable right off the start and you know after the let's say first few weeks start going by and you start to get weeds that are coming back um then we when he did a series of high mowings mm-hmm. um in the early part of the summer and then you know once it got pretty hot we sort of left it left it alone but um and i think it's important to to know you know when we talk about the the native plantings most of the time we're talking about planting um during the dormant season and they're you know based on you know the different types of grasses and forbs generally speaking um you know may 1 is is about the cutoff and there was a little bit of delay on seed and everything getting to your door and, and a change up, uh, working with, with pure air. Um, so the planting was, if you will, in an, like I'm air quoting the ideal world was slightly later than what you would have wanted planted, yeah. um, later yeah. May, but you got the seed in the ground. And, and I think it's important to note cause someone's going to ask email in or comment, you know, what were you planning into and, and how did you plant these natives? So this was existing crop fields or the very edges of crop fields. So, um, you know, you had had um, crops in there prior. And uh, so there wasn't that much, let's say, site prep that you needed to be able to do. Uh, I'm sure yep. you probably sprayed one time during that that spring getting up to that point. And then yep. we used a no-till drill with the carrier, peat moss, and the seed to drill in directly into that field. Um, That's right. And, 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 you know, these corridors, what were, what were the dimensions of them? You know, not necessarily length, but, like, how wide were these were these corridors or the field edges that you planted? Yeah, so each of the strips were maybe, um, I think we designed them about 25 feet wide. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then... Um, I guess back to the planning, one other thing, too, is just, um, you know, Trevor out of Pure Air, Trevor Bennett, you know, he was very helpful in trying to give me some guidance on not just the peat moss, but also, you know, seed depths, because we all know mm-hmm. with a no-till drill, either it's hard ground, soft ground, sometimes you got to really pay attention to it. And he was really recommending, you know, trying to stay above, you know, right around three-eighths of an inch, you know, so not very far in the ground at all. And right. so we ended up using, um, you know, some spacers, to kind of really control the depth sure so that that was a big help for um you know the germination thing but um one of the, i guess one big lesson learned so you you mentioned that there was a little bit of a delay with the seed um you know we had sprayed earlier in the spring like you said planting for like a early may mm-hmm. uh planting and so some of the areas when we finally got to plant in late may you know, you'd already seen some annual weeds come back, right? Sure. And um, we, you know, our we partner with a farmer who has a larger scale sprayer, and I kind of have just like you, uh, you, most people do, a smaller sprayer that I use on food plots. And sure. so yeah. we weren't able to go back over all of it. And what was cool, though, is it's almost like a science experiment. I did go over some areas that the farmer had missed when sure. they sprayed initially. Right. And it was a, it was a stark contrast to – 
you know, something that we sprayed three days before planning, which mm-hmm. was, you know, one area to the areas that we had sprayed, you know, three weeks before. And, um, I guess one very big lesson learned if I was to do it again is, you know, I would, I would wait till the seed is at your door. Sure. Um, if you can and try to get it early enough in the season so that your weeds haven't got that tall and do a, a, a spraying application just right before you plant, because it really gives your weed, your, your planting the chance to get up and get going before a lot of the other things can Absolutely. come up. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great advice. And, and, you know, ideally, even if, you know, let's just say you're trying to plant late in the dormant season, that prior growing season, we'd, we'd suggest and like to have two herbicide applications. So you could do one late summer to kill a lot of the, um, the, the things that might be growing during the, the, the summer time frame, kill those mm-hmm. out, and then do another one um, during October after the first frost kill any cool seasons to just completely clean that seed bed and plant that um, that following January, February, March time frame. That would be yeah. an ideal world. But a- as a farmer, uh, as um, you know, someone who as a land manager, you know that hardly ever do you get just that ideal world scenario where it's like this just came together timing wise, rain wise, just so perfect. That just doesn't yeah. really happen. So you you just kind of you roll with the punches and you go with what you got. Um, and, and it sounds like you certainly did that um, to the best of your ability. But we, we, you put the seed in the ground late May, and you talked about the maintenance um, through the growing season. You started with some high mowings. Um, how, many, how many high mowings did you do that first year? Because this is something that really at the core of the message for, for what you know, we're trying to accomplish here is, this is you're you're not going to be jumping up and down most likely at the end of that growing season saying wow that was fantastic i can't believe my <laughs> eyes kind of thing yeah. so especially when you're going in intentionally mowing and clipping some things right i mean you're like right. you want me to go in and mow what i what i just seeded and spent x amount of dollars on are you, are you kidding me right. but Talk us through kind of the, the mowing sequence and then what your thoughts were at the end of growing season number one. So that would have been, you know, fall, October 2019. Yeah, so um, I, I think we mowed a total of probably like three times, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I would say that maybe three weeks in, in between each mowing-ish. Which is, uh, two which three is weeks. a perfect application for year one. Yeah, yep. and then... I would say, you know, once once we stopped mowing, you know, we still did have plants that came to to seed. Um, we did, you know, I did have the opportunity to kind of have a little bit of excitement where you see some butterflies or a mm-hmm. few of your plants are starting to flower. Um, but it was still just the beginning, like you said. And then to draw a contrast to this year, right, where we did no mowings, um, you know, just kind of let everything go from where it was that had stopped last um fall and through the winter and you know right out the gate you saw a lot of your forbs get going and sure. um, you were, you were sending you know, a lot of pictures of things in the rosette right. state like what is this i'm like i don't know yet <laughs> but but and right I out had, the gate you could start to see much more expression even even very early spring yes, into the planting yes yeah and i had no idea what was about to happen right sure. you know because in from the from like late February when I was really starting to see a lot of activity and growth um, to, you know, the beginning of this month, 
right? When you stopped by, it was just the perfect time. We had, oh, beautiful. you know, the whole whole meadow was just full of of flowers that had bloomed and, you know, just wildlife. We I think when we, we, we have a little electric golf cart, right? And yep. we were driving down there and we we're talking. And as we pull in right next to the meadow, here went, you know, a hen turkey and three yep. three deer, right? It's just the amount of... Um, you know, attraction to this area is, is, has improved, um, drastically. No, oh, without a doubt. And, and now, you know, it's, it's at least belly button high. Um, if, if not a little bit taller, full of blooms, full of cool yeah. and warm season grasses. Um, and then this was just, uh, you know, beginning second week of June, maybe. And yep. the grasses haven't put a seed head on them. Um, so there's nope. still more height, obviously to get going, this is probably the, some of the early blooming um, flowering stages of, of a lot of the plants. We were starting to see more uh, and different varieties of flowers, you know, starting to, to begin to bloom and blossom out. The fields were pretty much yellow um, with Coreopsis at the time of the visit, but we could start to see other ones coming along. And it's like, this thing yep. is alive. Like we, there, was, there was insects everywhere buzzing throughout it. And and you talk about that that drastic comparison. You know we're we're planting, or you planted in the middle and just completely broke up crop fields. So on either side of some of these corridors, you've got areas that were sprayed and then drilled with. I think was it sorghum? I believe you said. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Grain sorghum, and so you have four inch five inch grain sorghum um you know throughout the field that's been drilled but there's there's no other let's say life there there was no insects we did see like three skunks (laughs) but (laughs) that's right but um when when we're talking about things that relate or or attract wildlife to those areas you know there wasn't anything but but in those corridors or you know I wouldn't call this a corridor maybe more of a, a larger screen but the area you devoted to um uh you know right there by the clover food plot where we saw the turkey and and the deer that's yeah. that's a little bit deeper um probably probably what 40 yards by 50 yards something like that um yeah. if not a little bit bigger but uh, you know those areas were were ridiculously uh, alive with with wildlife that were thriving the plants were thriving um and, and most importantly and this is the term colin frank like to use a lot and that we have certainly adopted as well and applied it to more larger game species but usable space um you know if that was all crops just like you know outside of these plantings were you weren't going to see those wildlife doing, reacting the way that they did as we drove up. Or, and, you know, and even when we came back, we went to the back of the farm, spent probably another 20, 30 minutes looking things and drove back through. Those t- those two deer, three deer, they were back in the area. And they didn't leave yeah. this time. They just let us drive right past. All you could see were eyes, nose, and ears. And their bodies were covered. They were protected. But turkeys, turkey poults, hopefully there's going to be poults. You're going to see them in there. Um, but it would have been fantastic nesting cover. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, or a place for a yep. fawn to lay down. Again, if that was a crop field, it would have been bare, naked from, you know, all the way through winter, all the way through spring, and just now in early June it would have had four-inch tall sorghum well, sprouts think, every 
foot? I think what's really, um, I mean, you talked earlier about sort of the long-term view on this. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think what's exciting about it, right, is is it is, you are providing more to the wildlife than just food, right? You're providing a lot of other aspects that they need, um, you know, cover it being one of them. um, And just for me, you know, I I texted you one day and I said, hey, you know, have you ever known a guy to brag about his flowers? I was over (laughs) my father-in-law's house and I'm showing him pictures and stuff. And because... It, it, like, I think when we last talked on the last podcast, we, we had this saying, you know, you, you reap what you sow, right? Yeah, so if you, if you put the time and effort in, then you get to enjoy all these results. And it has been a um, just an awesome time yeah. just to be able to like to see that progression. And honestly, I was just out there yesterday. Um, we planted some soybeans and some heritage from Stratton out in those areas and i just happened to notice you know the purple comb flower had come mm-hmm. on a lot heavier mm-hmm. since you were has come on um and so yeah it, it you're kind of get to see the progression and you kind of get to think even in my mind i'm thinking about okay what's next year going to be like what's the year after that going to be like oh yeah um and there and there is some more maintenance to be done right i mean sure. we saw Absolutely. for example the the clover um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know just standard Ladino kind of white clover that has encroached into the area already. Some of the areas that weren't as sick and I didn't plant that. It just happened automatically. So right, you know, come, you know, when it's dormant season again, you know, there'll be some maintenance to be done as well. You know, it's kind of an ongoing thing. And and someone might say, wait, wait, so clover somehow seeded itself there or the seed bank. Yeah. And it, it, it popped up. Um, and someone may say, well, why are you getting rid of that? That's clo- clover. Well, the, the purpose of these, these areas is not to um, have that kind of food, let's say. There's a clover plot right next door to it. We want the clover to stay there. This needs to be screened. This needs to be cover. This needs to be other warm season food. And, and clover, um, being a better in the cool season versus most of these varieties... Um, if it has the start out of the growing season, it's not going to stop. It's going to completely take that that native planting back over. So the clover needs to be addressed and, and needs to be removed from these areas. So it's important to to have a designation when you, when you're thinking about breaking up your farm of of where these aspects need to be going. And we talk about you know the spatial, the distribution of different resources across the place. Just because you've got clover growing in an area that you know clover clover's great, but it needs to be in this case it needs to be managed, um, or or we lose right. out on the benefit of of something that is is greater. Um, and we could put clover in other places, but we just we don't want it here. Um, so. It's important to, to, like you said, continue to maintain all these different features, um, you know, revolving around the native planting. But it's also doing what we're doing right now. Important to talk about, hey, we're, we're doing something that a lot of people probably consider, but don't just pull the trigger on. And um, it's important to have, you know, your success so far. Again, the, the phrase when, when we always talk about native plantings with, with clients is or, or on the podcast you guys may have heard is the year one, they sleep. Year two, um, excuse me, 
Yeah. Year one, they they sleep. Year two, they creep. And year three, they leap. You're you're at the you know first half of the growing season in year two, and and this is a creeping stage. They haven't even leaped yet. And and look at the success. Look at look at how wildlife have related. It's beautiful to look at, and it's amazing to stand in um, having that cover provided. And 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 we're not even all the way through it's it's maturing in in the planting so um yeah there's more maintenance to do but there's there's more benefit to gain from from all of this um what 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 would be your your encouragement or what would you say to someone who is considering and we're not we're talking about man you know like native plant communities here we're not talking about like individual species oh you know blue stem's the best one you got to have the blue stem or 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 echinacea you got to have um that in in your planting but like when we're talking about establishing natives what do you got to tell that person who's on the fence you know wanting to pull the trigger about it but doesn't know you know what to do or what you know how how they're going to bite it off or um, they're just more worried about the risk of it what do you say to them Sorry, man, I, I didn't hear that last bit. What was I that? Said, what, what would you say to those people who are on the fence about planting? Um, oh, yeah. well, I'd, I'd say a couple things, right? So, one, um, there's there's the way we talked about it, right, where you sort of start from virgin ground, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and go through the whole steps of the maintenance the first year. And then, you know, honestly, it seems like there's a big payoff from that. So, I would say... You know, there is a little bit of work up front, but there's a high reward at the end. But I'd also say that, you know, if you if you don't um, have access to a no-till drill or you don't have the um, – I mean, there are some programs out there to help you mm-hmm. uh, cost share for some of this. But, you know, there is an expense to planning some of this stuff. And if you don't have either of those, you know, you've, you talk about a lot in the podcast about an early – cool season spray right where you can take an area that has some natives in it and enhance it right um and i know you'll probably talk about dan's success on that Mm -hmm. when he comes on but you know i think that's another option too is to try to you can uh creep a little bit and see how that goes on the on that way and hey you can come back in and and no-till right through areas you've started right you can you don't have to do it all at once uh or you can reduce the size if 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 you're worried about expense, right? Sure. And then one more thing about the, the payoff, right? So we talked a lot about the, the wildlife payoff and just the, for me personally, as a steward of the land, you know, sense of satisfaction. But I think there's been another cool thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is the interaction with the family, right? So we take, we take the golf cart and head down there and, you know, we're looking at the flowers and, you know, my daughter who's, um, seven you know we have the iNaturalist app Mm -hmm. and we can take some pictures and figure out what things are um you know before this planning i would not know the difference between you know swampy milkweed and regular milkweed and you know the different varieties of uh coreopsis and you know just there's a whole um experience throughout the spring that you get to have with your family that you wouldn't otherwise have right because if you're just waiting to have a fall food plot planting that's sort of a one day you plant and you get to hunt over it and don't get me wrong that's a great experience yeah 
but this is just another way to kind of bring the family into the fold. 100%. There, there's so much educational opportunities that um, that go along with it because it is a little bit longer and drawn out. Like everyone could drive by a field and say, oh, yeah, there's soybeans growing that field. That's easy to identify, right? But but here it forces you to slow down. It forces you to interact because there's so much that's happening. And those, those then create opportunities. And, and truthfully, too, you know, it's, it's memories because it's beautiful. Like, that's a great place to take photos with a family, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I got I'm sure your wife loves to drive out and see it all, too. Yep. No, we got we got photos of the girls in there back um, a week or so before you showed up. So, yeah. I mean, they had lots of flowers, and, you know, the girls love it, right? They're out there, and they're pointing out, hey, there's a yellow uh, butterfly, or there's mm-hmm. a moth. You know, even talking about the difference between a moth and a butterfly, I mean, you kind of have an outside classroom. That's exactly what it is. And, and so it's not, yeah, it, does it improve the access to get to the fields in the back that, that, you know, you can have better hunts and reduce your intrusion? Absolutely. That, that is, that's paramount. But, man, these are the other things that I, I, I don't think, let's just say if, if you planted, um, oh, gosh, just a sorghum sedan, if you just did that as an annual screen, you're you're not gonna get the the additional benefits that you're talking about right, right, right. now, and, and the wildlife aren't gonna do it either. Um, you know, there's a there's a stark difference, and I think well, you have you have again a side by side comparison. Stark difference though, in a monoculture versus diversity and native diversity at that. Right. You mean like the CRP orchard grass versus yeah. yes. what we got here? But, yep. And and even yep. crop fields side-by-side comparison with this too you know either way you split it diversity and diversity of natives always is going to outcompete um basically what it's what it's put up against so that's super super awesome to see so much success in a short amount of time um but where preparation with maintenance that's what you get you you reap what you sow and i appreciate you coming on and sharing that success um I hope it encourages other people who are like, you know what, this is a year from now on, I- I'm devoting these acres to, um, I'm devoting to the natives. Maybe maybe it's a, it's a spot or two in a field where, um, you know, the yield is just poor. Maybe it's field edges, you know, where there's a drip line and the crops, again, are just poor yield. And, and the farmer's like, I don't really get anything out of it. If I don't have to farm it, that'd be great. Or you just say, you know what, this is important. This is a part of the property um, that I, I need this type of cover, forage, and diversity on it. I, I'm taking it out of crop production. Um, and there are lots of programs to be able to do that in. So um, right. hopefully this is encouraging it, to go and do that. And, I mean, you don't have to do a whole lot to have a major impact, right? I oh, mean, that no, not at one, all. One area that you're t- about that is not a strip or along the edge just kind of one of the bigger areas that was like an acre and a half uh-huh. on the, you know max two acres but i think it was closer to acre and a half so you know i think there is a, a a plan where someone can just take a little bit out of the time oh um, easy you know, bite the apple with one bite and kind mm-hmm. of keep going year after year take some of the experience that you find out what plants thrive and don't thrive and um, I tell you, I mean, I don't know if I've said it yet, but there was a few areas that didn't come up as well mm-hmm. in, in the planning. And 
I would say don't get too discouraged up front because, you know, like one of the things I mentioned in the beginning is, you know, that some areas were sprayed early and the annual weeds had come in pretty heavy by the time, mm-hmm. you know, summer had completed. And, you know, that, that happened. But, you know, a year later, you can see the progress that the things you planted are have, have made. And, right. and they're competing against the annual weeds. So it's not as if... Um, you know, it all has to happen at once. Yeah, but. yeah, exactly. And, and just like a food plot, you're going to have areas that are going to be stronger and better um, and areas that are a little bit weaker. That's all That's all okay. But it's the long term, the long, um, it's a long game, let's say, in land management when, when, you're, when you devote, um, and I think, it's, I think it's almost like a, it's almost, it can be, let's say, a turning point. And I don't know if, I don't know if you, I'm not trying to get you to say this, Kevin, but I don't know if you <laughs> went through this or not, but I think that it can also be a turning point in the land manager's mindset when they say, you know what, I'm going to stop thinking, you know, what can I plant right now? What can I yield right this growing season? Um, or or what, what can I hinge cut this? And now, wham, there's a little bit of cover. It's almost like if I if I can get on board with thinking and planting natives and knowing that there's long-term development and long-term gains, I think it's almost like you're rounding the corner and and then realizing really how nature works and how a lot of other land management techniques that are very important work. And and it's like, oh, you almost like enlighten yourself as a as a land manager and say, I'm I'm turning the corner and I'm getting I'm getting to understand fully how how nature is working um as this thing matures itself yeah i mean so you know life is an experience right so Mm -hmm. i don't want to get too philosophical but um (laughs) you know every every experience kind of you get to learn along the way right and if i hadn't have done this i wouldn't have kind of be where i'm at now where i can like you said use that experience to kind of take it and look at other projects right yeah um i mean when it comes you know for example that we started to to work on a bedding area and you know that was it's a step in the right direction but we haven't fully taken out all the canopy and Mm -hmm. you know it hasn't really released yet but that's okay because i know that that's sort of another one of my long long term chips that i'm playing it just is you know it's going to take time mm-hmm. and a little bit of elbow grease to, to get it done that's right and and if you have that mindset then i don't stress as much about what i haven't done oh and I yeah just focus focus more on okay what am i going to do next right i love it um phases and, and just approach it that way yeah yeah absolutely and i think that again that that's another fantastic point is work work is not going to happen overnight i mean you got to break it up into phases and and on your timetable on your on your watch um coronavirus afforded a lot of people more time this spring maybe you got ahead on projects or, or maybe um you had to just change the way you you worked and you had more time at work or whatever but you know it, you have to break it down in in what works for you and just know that um your your schedule it, is helping you to get to where you need to go and you can't like play that comparison game of of oh this person they did it that fast and they got it all done and this and that like for for instance your your bedding areas you went in you cut and then you realize i need to go back in and i I need to cut more and that's okay that works 
that works for you and, and what you're able to do. And I think I think you said even your your back, you got an injury on your back and you're like, oh, I'm not stressing about it because I can't get in there right now anyhow and and work like I need to work. I'll go do other stuff on the farm. There's there's yep. maturity and all that. So I love it. Um, but Kevin, thanks so much for for coming on and talking about the native plantings. I mean, th- this is again success. And I, and I love being able to share it. We actually shared some pictures of that on social media. Um, so if you guys are interested, be sure to go and check out those pictures. And I'll probably have a picture on the um, on the podcast uh, title title page there as well. So um, be sure to check all that out, guys. Kevin, thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing your experiences with, with everybody. Yeah, no problem. And, um, you know, I guess... I would last thing I would say is yeah. that uh, reach reach out and talk to folks. You know, uh, try to see if you can learn from others because that's you know you can learn a lot by just asking a few questions and and doing your best to uh, to how do I put it? I can't put it into words, but right. I guess the bottom line is I I appreciate all the help that I've gotten and hopefully um, I can be there to help someone else in the future. There you go, absolutely, man. Well, thanks again so much and. Um, Keep keep me updated. I want to see some. I want to see some late summer photos of what that place is going to look like. All right, all right. Uh, Ten four. You have have a nice afternoon. You too. Right, bye. You know, there's nothing better than hearing the success of people who have you know taken time, worked the property, and, and followed through with the recommendations. The success there, and being able to spend time um, with Kevin, and just seeing you know. Hey guys, I did this. That, that excitement there on his face was super, super awesome. So kudos to you, Kevin. Thank you so much for your time coming on the podcast and sharing that success with everyone. I hope it does encourage you guys to be able to to take that um, that first time experience. You know, he had never planted natives in the past, but take that first time experience, have success with it. And, and utilize that uh, for fuel. Hopefully that fuels you guys to be able to go forth and, and do it yourself. Um, but next up, we've got Daniel Adams of Maryland. Daniel has got uh, 30 acres, was just recently out there on his property, um, working with him to develop a land and wildlife management plan. And um, knew through social media and prior conversations that him and his family were very big um, gardeners and loved the whole side of where your food comes from movement that we that we've seen and um on just 30 acres it is amazing it's truly amazing to see just how much food can be produced the efficiency of um, his system and his operation um daniel's got young kids he's got a full-time job his wife has got a full-time job but their devotion to growing their food and growing it for not not only themselves but the community as well. Um, it is something to behold. You know, it, it does take some time, but the I think I think the reward that we're going to hear from Daniel that he gets um, is super big, and that and that is fueling that, and it's a passion too from from uh, knowing again where your food comes from, but but being the provider from that too, and, and doing it off the piece of land that that you own. And I think when you guys hear Daniel talk about it, the success that he's had, um, the methods that he's using, and then, too, 
even the square footage or, or the lack of square footage that it takes to be able to produce the number of animals that he's producing, the amount of food that he's producing, both produce and livestock on this 30 acres, is incredible. And so um, you can hear about all that today, what it means to be a steward of the land, because it's not just, you know, managing the natural resources. It, you know, it's, it's about feeding your family as well. And we're going to hear all about that today. So without further ado, please welcome on Daniel Adams. All right, Daniel, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How you doing? I am good, sir. Everybody, welcome Daniel to the podcast. We have got an awesome topic to cover today. I, I, um, Adam and I have talked a lot about this um, from just an just an interest standpoint. We both we both grew up, you know, on families involved in livestock and big expansive gardens. But but there has definitely been in the last few years, I would say five or so years, this just upward trend and tick of interest into, I guess what we'll, we'll call it uh, is, is an accurate enough term, but kind of the homesteading movement. And it, it sounds like we're going back to pioneer days, but that's that's not it at all. It's just um, a really big draw and focus to either growing your own food or raising your own food. And um, Daniel, you, you're doing that day in and day out on your property in Maryland. I mean, in, in the suburbs of, of Maryland. And, um, you know, people may really quickly think, oh, this is, doesn't, doesn't apply to me or this isn't important. I can't do that on my property. Um, and, and why the heck are, am I hearing about this on a Land and Legacy podcast? But I ask, <laughs> I ask those people to, to hang on and, and, and we'll, we'll really make this thing full circle at the end of this interview um, because it is very in line with, um, with Land and Legacy and um, kind of the, the way we would attack the, the native landscape this has a lot of very similar parallels. So, Daniel, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and ask that that you kind of give a little bit of background on yourself and then talk about, just real quick, kind of high level, what it is from a homesteading standpoint, what kind of things that you're doing, and then from there, we'll kind of break those out and, and kind of take them piece by piece as to what, what that may look like on a daily basis, on an on a annual basis. Um, because I think people are going to be probably shocked, let's say, not only at the amount of food that is produced on your property, um, but well, that's number one. But two is the size or, or the area that is devoted to that. And so, sure. um, I, and I'll say that from personal experience, I was there two weeks ago or a week and a half ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um as we did a, a consultation, um, for, you know, with Land and Legacy, we walked and we're working with um, trying to improve the property for for the wildlife side of things. But you know, coming coming to that property, it was shocking. You know, the the lack of area that was needed or required to produce all the things that you produce. So um, I say that, guys, you know, listening, 
that that surprised me and I, and I have some experience and background that all this was done in in this small amount of area and it's not I don't want to say small amount of areas it's like you know tight quarters from from a livestock or or you know we got animals stacked in it, not not like that at all um very holistic very um very encouraging to see that all this can be done in maybe an acre so I'll let you take it and kind of run with it and um, we'll, we'll just let the conversation roll. Yeah, for sure. So thanks. Um, I thought I might have scared you away initially when I texted you a picture of, of my uh, my five pigs and said, hey, we can work this into the plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, but funny. no, I, I grew up in uh, in Maryland and I kind of always had a garden that my mom let me, let me manage inside. I always loved corn and asparagus, so I did that. And then I just kind of did my college thing and um bought a townhouse and then had like a quarter of an acre and i just started doing gardening stuff there as well uh-huh. and i got connected um like on youtube just watching justin Rhodes uh doing yeah. a lot of homesteading stuff and then um like hearing about joel salatin and things yeah. like that and so i just kind of had a desire to kind of grow my own food and provide for the family and really just um be more connected to to a lot of things and we, we had a vacation spot up in new york um it's like 160 acres as well so it was just kind of i've always been kind of tied to the outdoors and the desire for um just kind of experiencing all that sure. so um in conversations my, my wife is more of a, a, a more of a city person so it was it was one of our conversations i was like hey i really want to get more property and do do a lot of this stuff and and it was like well we don't want to change where we work mm-hmm. and we don't want to change our church that we're in sure and so that wasn't that was important to our family so and and searching for a property it was difficult within you know 45 minutes of the dc area to find something that you know was relatively affordable so uh-huh. we uh we were able to find a property along power lines which gave us a nice discount <laughs> and <laughs> and um so we just kind of started and said so we have a um it's like 7500 square foot garden um we do 90 meat birds a year which are basically your corners cross that you um grow for anywhere from like five to eight weeks uh-huh. um for the gar- for for the freezer um i have like 45 egg layers and uh five pigs and so the meat birds are seasonal the pigs are seasonal the egg layers are year-round and the garden's pretty much year-round as well sure um so uh, we, we do have bees bees as well that's new this year that's so fantastic. um i would say on a it's about an acre and a half that's real close and tucked to the house that we're able to produce just, you know, all that, all that, uh, all that meat really, you know, it's, 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 it's pork for the year, it's chicken for the year and then veggies really for us for a year. And then just everybody that comes over is, it just provides for so many people. So it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And, and one of the figures that you were telling me, so it's a 7,500 square foot garden um footprint laid out you've got it um you got a fence around it. obviously we've got we got a ton of deer and um, right. keeping any other kind of pests out um that would that would you know have their fair share let's say of the garden itself but you know with that 7500 square foot um footprint 
you you were saying that roughly if if thirty families wanted to eat from this thing, it would supply vegetables for for thirty families, correct? Yeah, it, I mean it, it it pumps out a ton of food. Um, we just try to preserve it, give it away. Um, I actually have. Um, friends that come out here and are uh, kind of part of, you know, helping or really just harvesting for it. I mean, it's just uh-huh. crazy what you can, what you can produce out of out of one garden. So. Oh yeah, I mean, you're you're talking, you know, <laughs> daily. You're out there picking, or, or or folks are coming by to be able to um, pick produce from the garden, support their families. But you right. know, kind of quickly break down that process. We'll start with the garden since we're on the topic, but with a 7,500 square foot, like what, what does that process, let's say look like? And you, you kind of state it was roughly year round. There, there's, I mean, endless possibilities of things that you could potentially grow, but sure. um, kind of high level. Let's talk about those different varieties that you do choose to grow. And mm-hmm. then that, that kind of, okay, I'm getting into it. Let's say, you know, I'm prepping things late February, March, or, or, or you know, let's, let's just kind of go through a calendar year, let's say of that. Sure. So um, generally I, I, you have a spring garden, a summer garden and a fall garden. And fall gardening is actually my favorite, but um, spring, we're in Maryland here, and so it's a pretty short spring. So it's tough for a lot of plants to to go through about like a two-week spring. And then like this year it was cool, and then all of a sudden it was like 85, 90 degrees for a week and a half. And so all it's called bolting basically as it goes to flower and seed. And then really that like things like lettuces and cilantro and all the other stuff really just kind of – it's it's done until the fall again right so um yeah in terms of varieties we're in zone 7a which um is a pretty good uh, growing zone i think missouri is probably this a similar growing zone yep. um but we we start a lot of stuff inside um give it a head start and do a lot of transplants outside in terms of your, your broccoli your cabbages your fennels all that kind of stuff and then it, it gets pretty gets pretty big in the um, in the summertime, I, I think we have close to 200 tomato plants wow. and peppers and eggplants and squashes and things like that. And that's what we really enjoy, um, you know, putting away for the year. We can make our tomato sauce for the year and make, uh, you know, canned beets and relishes and all that cool stuff. So, I mean, really, um, if, if there was... I guess people are, you know, those those who routinely go to a grocery store. I think I think that the value of of looking at this and, and really kind of deciding, okay, holy cow, two hundred some tomato plant. Like, gosh, that right. takes so much time. But but what if you what if you evaluate truly how much time you or your spouse spends grocery shopping um and, and the expense that would go along with that of course there's an expense in in the plants themselves and, and the seed sources themselves and getting it started but if you have friends and family who pitch in and help with the maintenance that goes along with it you know where where does that uh, kind of rubber meet the road let's say in the efficiency of being able to produce your own food and that much that or that quantity of food. I mean, you talk about going and, and buying produce for just your family um, weekly. You know that that can be pretty expensive. Produce is is perishable, so you're going to pay for that at the store. But if you have the ability, even if you, let's just say you cut down to a quarter of the size, 
you still have a ton of food to be able to pr- be produced in, in that size of a garden. Um, you know, and and it doesn't take that much time to. Let's just say you 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 have a twelve hundred square foot garden. You can maintain that. You know, talk, let's I guess talk about some of the the time requirements it takes to to maintain or produce that. What what is what does that look like from a from a daily situation there? Yeah, sure. And and to to piggyback on your point about it doesn't need to be as large of it as it, it's turned into a slight addiction, just like deer hunting and all that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but so I do, I do, um, a no-till garden and it's kind of, they call it like market garden style. Mm-hmm. So it's 30 inch beds, 50 feet long. And if, and I have a, I have a cedar. So if I seed that 50 foot bed in carrots and I harvest that, those carrots and I wanted to start selling them or something like that, one 50 foot bed of carrots is worth about like almost uh, $600. Yeah. And it's just like, and, and at the same time I can plant that, that bed that's, you know, say it's worth $600. I can plant it in a variety that I can put in storage in a cool storage area. And I have carrots year round that either are in the ground or they're in my storage area. Sure. Sure. So it's just like, and so just the, just the ability to kind of produce all that. And, and even, like I was talking to my brother the other day, it was like they spend, you know, almost $800 a month at the grocery store. And I was like, really? Like it, it just kind of, after dealing with this for like a year and a half to two years on the property, it's like, you forget, you forget what it's like to, to have that as like a, a bill, you know? Absolutely. And so, so for us, I mean, I might go twice a month and spend, like if I spend over a hundred dollars, it's kind of crazy. Right at, at the grocery store itself. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, you think about all the, you know, there's there's of course you know, random stuff that you're gonna need to be able to get that the garden wouldn't be able to supply, sure. or or your meat, birds, and eggs and stuff like that. But but when you look at the most expensive things that are, and like I I've had this conversation with with my wife a lot. It's tough to eat healthy. It mm-hmm. costs money to eat healthy. When you go to a store and you start looking at, you know, you know, all the healthy options and things like that. I mean, it costs money. It's it's, it's a real expense. But when you produce sure. that on your own, um, on your time, you don't you you don't have that expense, and it does remove a lot of a grocery bill for sure. Um, but of course, there's going to be you know the random stuff that you're going to be able to to you know, need to pick up at, um, at the grocery stores. But yeah, imagine it, if you have that, you know, six to $800 bill, um, the grocery store, if you've got a, a decent sized family every, every month, what if you can just trim that in, in a quarter, right? Like that, that would right. save a lot of money. You do that over the course of a year. Wow. You're saving a ton, a ton of money. Um, but, but you have to replace that time with, the proper storage and the, the propagation of, of the garden itself. Um, but I think you kind of hit the nail on the head and said, it's turned into an addiction. Like I, yeah. the, the, the draw of being outside and working and, and like planting the seed, watching it work, watching it grow, watching it produce something to produce something that, that you can then feed your family on. That's very rewarding. I think that like it's, it takes, 
being outside and working in nature or in a garden and it just provides so much just personal satisfaction that it is addicting it's like well if i start out with a thousand square foot garden this year maybe i'll just decide what i'm good at growing or what i can grow successfully here and then next year i'll bump it up and i'll do 1500 and i'm sure it's probably how you got up to the 7500 square foot garden over time but you know it's it's like i could do more i had success right. in this. i want to do more that was that right. tasted so good my family and i we love this recipe let's let's do more yeah, and I'm and 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 I'm not replacing a carrot with a carrot. I'm replacing a, a homegrown carrot that you're just like, man. What? Like, I had a buddy come over, and I was like, I was like, I always go through the garden. I'm like, hey, try this real quick. Try this real quick. And yeah. I was like, hey, have you ever had kale before? It's like, oh yeah, I think so. And so I'm like, all right, here, try this. This is like a red Russian kale. Uh-huh. And and he took a bite of it. He's like, I don't think I've ever had kale before, Daniel. This thing's crazy tasting, you know. <laughs> like it's just like I mean, it's it's pretty night and day in terms of just the quality of it and the the taste of it, and just you know, I'm not gonna shy away and say that it's, you know I just put a seed in the ground and it's done. There's a lot of there's a lot of inside work. There's a lot of hardening off the plants. There's a lot of transplanting. There's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it's it's extremely rewarding for sure. And, and let's cl- quickly talk about that because you know there there let's let's do a, a comparison side by side comparison of how mm-hmm. like uh, uh, food a a piece of produce select any kind I don't, I don't really care mm-hmm. uh, a piece of produce would go from a large manufacturer uh, manufacturing farm let's say a produce farm to the grocery store you know to be able to make sure that it is ripe at the store, it's got to be picked prior to you picking it out of your garden, taking it to your sink, washing it off, and then eating right. it for dinner. So, like, kind of walk through that a little bit, breaking up the, the differences and, and just overall taste and, and the probably the um, healthiness of, of that meal because I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I have read and seen, you know, those places that are farmed so heavily, um, you know, the, the the plants are pulling so many nutrients out of the ground there, and they've been worked for so many years that <laughs> in those large farms, they're they're not the 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 fruit or the nutrition of that um, produce isn't there anymore. Or I shouldn't say it's not there anymore. It's not to the same high level that it was maybe produced thirty years ago on that same ground. Yeah, it's just not it's not necessarily sustainable and, and really um I I think I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast or or somebody's, but they were talking about how like organic is great and it's a great idea, but a lot of things have to be stripped down to make it as yes. like organic or just I don't want to say neutral, but like just just so they can put that organic tag on it, right? Right. Whereas something that might not have the standard to be considered organic would have a much better nutritional value for you. Um, so like I, they were talking about how like, they were going to come up with scanners that basically show the nutritional value of that food uh-huh. rather than just like a, a calorie or, 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 you know, a carb or sugar or protein. And so the, the ability with the garden is I can, I can rotate crops. I can, pay real close attention to the the science and the makeup of the soil um i know you and i talked about briefly when we were in the garden that you know talking about cover crops or 
-hmm. even Mm -hmm. putting, you know, having a section of it go to rest or putting the chickens on a section of it yeah, or just kind of, just kind of anything. And that's why it's nice to have a larger garden is you can, you can really manage it very closely, pay attention to the, I mean, I was putting, um, uh, like, uh, sulfur on my garden and, and, uh, boron and like all these micronutrients that not, aren't just for the soil they're for the vegetables to to feed off of and then are transferred to the vegetable so you know now my vegetables have micronutrients in it yeah you know well, and then that's that's just a whole nother level of everything absolutely adam and i just had a discussion i guess you know um, some of the soil samples on his family farm and everyone has heard us talk about those in the past of you know the the series of, of disking and kind of destruction that those areas went through. Sure. Um, boron is very, very low in many of the food plots. And, um, you know, through research, Adam's like, man, we never grow turnips well um, up there on the farm. Other places, you know, the next ridge over, fantastic bulb size, everything. Um, but boron is incredibly important for bulb producing um, plants. So, sure. you know, Hey, maybe, maybe there's that, there's that connection. Here's why not. So man, we need to add that back in. So e- even when you get down to, like you're saying that, that micronutrient level, it's extremely important in, in produce, but in a smaller garden, you have the ability to monitor that, monitor that kind of stuff and make those necessary, um, amendments, uh, if necessary. So it's, <sighs> It, it's a hard it's a hard one to um say wow that doesn't have a a place and you know you're you're like me you're a normal guy right it it's not sure. that it it takes a rocket scientist to be able to that's that really supposed funny. to be a joke i i just <laughs> said that and i that's hilarious so a little background story you work at nasa right yeah so yeah. i that's that's funny i i didn't mean that Seriously, that just is a common <laughs> phrase I use. But um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how to plant a garden successfully, or or just or just propagate one. You know, you you can, anybody can do it with a little bit of um, desire and, and research, and boom, you've got a lot of food. Sure, and and to your point about the the turnips is we actually make a foliage spray, which is it's just a, a borax and water, so it's it's basically like a boron spray. Uh-huh. And, um, we use that for beets. Beets specifically is something that is pretty difficult to build up. I haven't had problems with turnips and such, but mm-hmm. um, the beets, it's like a, just a, you know, homemade uh, foliage spray that just kind of assists in the, in the process of them bulbing up uh, probably like a month after they, they, they seed and stuff. And, and, with the garden, I really, and kind of, this kind of translates to land legacy as well as I always wanted to, like when I wanted to start a, a big adventure that cost uh, a decent bit of money yeah. and it took a lot of effort, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing and how to plan to do so. Sure. And sure. so when I started the garden, I had, I, I bought, I purchased a course from Neversink Farm, which is near near our property in New York and they're, they're a market style garden. Um, it's just, it's just phenomenal. So I, I, I work through their program. So everything that I do is kind of a shortcut to me figuring out the problems or me, me making mistakes, um, and really just losing interest in it. And so, so when it came to, okay, I got, 
I got my meat production. I got my egg production. I got my vegetable production. Now I want to go back to really making the land better, making what I own better, improving the property for my family and my kids, and just experiencing wildlife better. It was like, well, I, I need to have a plan. And, I, and I've been listening to your podcast forever. And it was like, you know, this is, this is just the next step. And it's just, it's just another, another fuel to the fire of my, uh, my addiction, I suppose. And, and um, so just kind of making, making that homestead really kind of everything that I could have. So it's, it's oh, been man. fun. Yeah, absolutely. It, it and, and you kind of, you hit the nail on the head there and said, you know, it, it shaves shortcuts, you know, that's, that's yeah. the benefit. Uh, you know, if you get into that, that big adventure, that big next step, something you want to tackle, um, there's nothing more frustrated than, than just hitting roadblocks that could have been avoided or, or those, those failures that, you know, if I had taken time to do research or, or gotten assistant outside assistance, um, maybe I wouldn't have had that frustration. Um, and I probably could have been more successful year one, two, three with a, with that garden. Um, but if I didn't know, um, that I needed to do this in the preparation standpoint, I wouldn't have had that failure. You just, you save so much time, energy and money, um, that it makes you successful more more times out of the gate than it does, sure. you know, on on your own. There's 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 nothing wrong at all with with seeking that outside help, and um, obviously it's helped you produce an extremely successful um, garden and um, you know broilers and layers and and the pigs as well. So if you don't mind, let's kind of shift over into into the the chicken side of things and talk sure. um broilers and layers and and kind of define those for people who may not be aware of that and then if you will kind of go through how you move those chickens and kind of the structure um in which that you you've created and move those chickens around your yard essentially i mean it, it's it's just outside of your yard if you're gonna i'm kind of trying to paint the picture visually for people it's like 50 yards from the house but it's you know you go from three foot i mean three inch tall grass to like six inch tall grass essentially is the only mm-hmm. difference between where, where these chickens are feeding and um roaming and being moved you know every every couple of days you know that's that's the only difference of 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 where these chickens are in comparison to the house. So if you will break that uh, side of things down for us. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I started out with egg layers. I, I broke a lot of HOA rules and stuff when uh, I lived on a quarter of an acre to have chickens <laughs> just because I, <laughs> I uh, Justin Rhodes said so. And then, so, so that was kind of how, that was my gateway to things. And then um, what I have for the chickens is just like a mobile chicken coop. Um, there's a lot of designs online and such. Um, and I have two 100 foot, um, uh, premier one poultry netting around them. Mm-hmm. And so they get moved weekly and they have nest box inside, inside of the coop. They have roost inside of the coop. And, um, so they get moved weekly and they're, they cover, they cover six, what I call paddocks is basically, um, areas where they are. So then, Every time I move them, that area where they were has rest enough to basically, uh, I guess, food safety-wise or just mm-hmm. just uh, in terms of the nitrogen load that's left there, it has that time to break that all down to kind of be, um, 
is overgrazed the term for chickens. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it gives a lot of rest to that. And then, so, so egg layers are, are a lighter style bird that are basically bred to produce eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a heritage breed, which is a little bit more, um, kind of a neutral breed. That's what Joel Salatin uses. It's a, it's a little bit of a heavier bird. They don't produce exactly an egg a day, but, um, I get about two dozen eggs off of 40 chickens a day. And so it's not, it's, it's a pretty good conversion rate. Still a lot of the commercial places, um, their chickens are putting out an egg a day. Um, but a a lot, a lot of times that they're, that's their sole purpose in life. And I I do like the foraging aspect, uh, the ability for the chickens to eat grasses and ticks and bugs and stuff like that. I think it, it really improves the, the quality of the egg. Um, so they get moved. Their their actual coop gets moved every day within that um, within that area, and then that whole that whole um, paddock gets moved once a week. Um, so that's that's pretty much right outside the house. Um, and and, and you you said that the hundred a hundred foot fencing or, or netting, and that that does have electric applied to it, correct? Um, so that nothing can yeah. get in. Um, yep. but, but, you know, it's a very simple, there's stakes in the netting that allow you to, um, very easily move that, that netting and get those birds shifted around to a new paddock, or you're just mm-hmm. within that paddock that week, you're moving the actual, um, laying, um, hut around that, sure. that, that, that square footage. And again, people are like, what does that look like? It's, it's small. It's very small. If you don't have a hundred, um, linear foot of, of netting, you it's know, two two hundred foot two hundred foot uh, Premier One fences, so it's okay, fifty by fifty, right. and um, you know it's it's more than acceptable free range. Absolutely. Um, and so they get let out of the coop every day. They get um, uh, free range or everything. I do have six ducks, so I do have like a kiddie pool in there, so that uh-huh. they get to be crazy in there and stuff. But <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's just a rope on the front of the coop that. And there's two wheels on the back. It moves super simple. Um, I'd say it takes me if I'm if I'm just letting them out in the morning and make sure they have water and feed. It's maybe five minutes, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And then when I move the paddock, I move it first thing in the morning when they're inside the coop because they go sure. inside the coop at night and I close it up and then turn on the electric fence so nothing gets them. But um, I actually have foxes. I'll, I'll watch I'll watch a fox sit outside of them sit outside that fence. And just look in because they've touched it enough that they know that that's an that's an electric fence and I'm not messing with it, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I move them once they're in the coop uh, first thing in the morning so that they uh, they're a little bit contained and I'm able to kind of shift them around a little bit better. Um, but that's that's the egg flock. Does yep. that cover what you're thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's forty birds, correct? Yeah, yep, two roosters and 38 hens. Nice. So what about the um, the broilers? So the broilers, the, the coop that I have is 5 by 10, as in the, the area inside of it. Uh-huh. Um, it's the same style as the egg layer. I think it's John Shishkovich or something. He's up in Maine. Uh, right. Difficult last name to pronounce. Yeah. Um, but he's got, a, he's got a book where he has the plans and such. Um, and then, so a five by 10 is rated for 30 birds in terms of being totally free range. And since they're meat birds, which means they're bred just for their meat, they, 
they're really lazy. And so they, they're just really bred to eat and go in your freezer. Right, right. Uh, eat, they're bred to eat the food and then they go in our freezer for the, us to eat them. Sure. Um, and so they just put on weight and just eat and eat and eat. And so they actually stay within that coop um, just for safety reasons. They don't, they're not aware of predators. They're not aware. I, I do live along the power line. So there's, and the water. So there's ospreys, there's hawks, sure. there's owls, there's uh, bald eagles and all that stuff. So to reduce them being picked off, they just stay within that coop. And within uh, five to eight weeks, five, five weeks, they're about four and a half, five pounds. Um, depending on when I can do the butcher dates and such, uh-huh. they can get, they can get up to, I had a couple seven, eight pounders, uh, this last time, which is pretty large for a chicken. Sure. Sure. And so, and that's a, that's probably that seven, seven to eight week period. Some of them got to yeah. that size yep. and, and mm-hmm. think about that's, that's less than two months. You're taking, uh, I guess what size of bird you get and then um how many can you produce in that five to eight um five by eight five by ten excuse me structure so how many how many different um how many different rounds will you go in a growing season for the broilers um yeah so so you would i think uh just about every bird that i have on property here was ordered and shipped to me via mail okay so they they, they come overnight, and so you get them as day-old chicks from the post office. The post office will call you. They won't put them in your mailbox. <laughs> and so you go pick them up, and then you put them for, depending on the type time of year, right now um, it's about two weeks in the brooder, which means yep. that it's basically a, a, a temperature-controlled area. Really, mine is a bunch of scrap wood together with um, – a heat lamp on them and food and water. So yep. they stay there for, they stay there for anywhere from two to three weeks. And then at that period, they're, they're large enough where they can, they can go out on the grass and then they'll go out on the grass for, for three weeks um, or more, depending on kind of when it, how everything lines up. And I mean, really however long that they are on that area, if they move once a day, and you're talking about a, a five foot by 10 foot section, you just kind of multiply that. You, I move them once each day. So they're just covering that square footage each day. And so, you know, if it's five weeks or it's eight weeks, it's a little, it's a little bit different, but I mean, it doesn't take much ground at all. I'm doing no. all this on, no. I'm doing all this on an acre and a half. And that really includes my house, my garden, yeah. my pigs, my egg layers, the meat birds, a small orchard, and then, uh, you know, grass that is just around my house. So, um, meat birds definitely don't take up, take up a lot of space. And so I'll do, um, three rounds of 30. So I'll have 90 birds. Um, my goal is to have like one a week for our family and then we'll give some away or sell some to family and friends and, uh, and just kind of, and trying to introduce other people to it and yeah. see how one easy it is, but just how much, how much better it is really, you know? Certainly. And you, and you process, um, all those chickens yourself, correct? Yeah. I have a buddy down the street that, um, is a full-time farmer and he does, um, had, I think it's probably about 1500 birds a year. Um, in addition to, uh, pigs and lambs and things like that. Um, so I basically trade, 
my services in terms of helping him with his birds uh, to process sure. mine. So it, they go into a um, inspected quote unquote facility, <laughs> and yeah. and so and, and that just means that it's uh, you know it, we we he has all the equipment and stuff. It's sure. not not like there's somebody there from the government watching us. But, sure. Um, so he's got the scalder and the plucker and the vacuum sealer and stuff like that. So, it, I mean, it looks like a professional bird once it hits our fridge That's or freezer. Cool. And, um, it's just the, the amount of meat that you can put away is immense, uh, compared to really at the time it's the initial investment of, uh, making the coop is probably 250 bucks and uh-huh. a couple, couple hours of work, but, and the, the meat birds say two bucks. And then, um, I, well, we'll just make it easier. I can produce a uh, eight pound chicken, seven, eight pound chicken for just over six dollars. Wow. Wow. And and you that, that includes two breasts, two breasts of, uh, of meat at the store. Oh, that's crazy. There you go. <laughs> and you're not. And expense. yeah. And even on even on sale, it's not it's not that, you know, no. so you're talking about free range, non GMO pasture raised birds for six dollars yeah whole birds six six dollars in, yeah. in, in the in the can that's awesome and, and like i said yep. you, you've got that you've got one of those a week it's not like you've just oh treated yourself sure. you know with that type right. of production and small 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 uh you know area within within the yard if you want to you're producing sure. that every single year um 90 of those 90 of those birds so um if you were to sell one yeah i'm sure you you you, you know do family friend discount or whatever, but like if you sure. wanted to, you know, produce that and sell that bird as a whole package, vacuum sealed out the door, what what would that typically go in a market? If if you said I wanted to make some some money off this stuff, yeah. So so the guy that I work with would sell them more around the four to five pound range, just because of the sticker shock, and it's sure. a more appropriate appropriate size bird for a table. Uh-huh. A seven or eight pound bird is is a good size, a but bird, um, yeah. <laughs> so the four to five pounders, um, they're, they're probably around twenty or twenty five dollars. So for me sure. to sell sell a seven eight pounder would be thirty thirty five dollars, which you know, I I'd sell it to family and friends for fifteen bucks, but sure, you know, just to cover my cost and 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 things like that. But yeah, I mean, if you were to put a true dollar value on it, it's it's pretty. That's pretty a, rewarding that's a, to that's put a that pretty away. Good markup, you know, from from an investment standpoint. Uh, of course, there's sure. time, there's time, and then there's feed. But um, but truthfully, uh, it you could make a dollar on it. Let's say um, while sure. while producing yeah. food for the family. So um, that's a great um, a great illustration of the the chicken aspect that you have there within the acre and a half. Um, and mm-hmm. then let's go into into the pig production too, because people, I'm sure. You know, people think pigs are just horrible, messy, nasty creatures. Uh, maybe they've seen pig lots, and and um, you know they're just very turned away from that. But um, sure. more or less, that's that's a way that they are um, raised by that farmer specifically. They don't have to be like that at all. Sure. And, and I think that. Um, when people realize and look at the different ways of, of raising them, they'll quickly find that out. So talk us through that. Yeah, for sure. And um, so the pigs, uh, they basically spend two months 
as as piglets uh, with the mom and getting weaned away. And so you purchase basically two year old, two month old um, piglets, and um, they generally get to size and by size I mean to around 250 pounds in, in six to seven months and I have a similar setup in terms of the premier one fencing uh-huh. it's it's pig netting so it's it's shorter um, and it, it's right at the pig's wet nose in, in case sure. they touch it and sure. so basically um, uh, I, I got them they were born January 22nd uh, I got them sometime in March, um, trained them to electric fence, and then they're in uh, the same setup in terms of uh, 200-foot nets, uh, electric netting, and it's all movable. It's all It has, like, stakes in between. I think it's every eight feet, mm-hmm. so you can wind it around trees. And so right now they're in the woods, and so they get moved at, at, at most every 12 days on the, on the third, around 12, 13 days, the parasite builds up in their feces. It's just really unhealthy for them to live, uh, sure. kind of in, in that, in that, uh, that same uh, square footage area. Yeah. Yes. That same paddock. So I just been moving them around through my woods. Um, and as they get older, they, they do a little more destruction, but they're in the woods where they're just, that first couple of days that they're in the woods, their food consumption just goes way down because they're just foraging off things that were there, rooting around, uh, eating the vegetation. It's just really cool to watch. And so um, they get they they do have grain. Obviously, they they do need. Um, it's I think the rule of thumb is a pound of grain for every month that they've been alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the older they get, the higher feed consumption, obviously. But um, I, the ones that were born in January, uh, have five out there now and they're, they're probably all around 200 pounds. So they're pretty large. And, and back to your point of making a dollar on it, or really just my goal is to introduce people to it, share it with people and to at least two of the pigs are sold. So that that's going to pay for the entire pig operation sure. itself. So, um, just bringing the community together and, and doing all that is just, is just really fun for me. Well, and, and you think about the amount of, again, square footage that those pigs, you're like, oh, they're in my woods. And I could, I could hear people right now be like, well, nope, never, never would have pigs, yeah. never, ever, ever. But we're not right. talking about you know, the majority of their time. The first, the first few months of, of their, their life, they were in the wide open like they they weren't in the woods they're they're just kind of being let's say finished more shaded when when we got warmer temperatures they're just going more spending more time in the shade and um i mean i i would say you you at the at the end of this um probably a half acre maybe at most that maybe yeah that these pigs are gonna be on period ever in within the timber and you know this is the beauty as as we're kind of wrapping everything up here, this is the this is the beauty of um, working with nature and knowing how it works. You know, you talked about the pigs kind of rooting up and in, in around some things. Like if you say, "Hey, here's a half acre that I'm going to finish some pigs on," you know, every single year. Wait, what's mm-hmm. what's a half acre to give up? Really, nothing. And 
the land heals itself. Like it, it's it's and it's not like I don't want to say when they root around it's just destruction. It's not like you've got you know a sounder of thirty wild pigs that go through that people are like oh my god. Hmm. It's it's not it's not that same way. You know you've got you got five pigs. Yes, it's in a confined area, but you you have the ability to move them, and and you're also supplementing their forage too, and, and so it's not like. These massive areas are just, you know, completely destroyed from a native vegetation side of things. This is a disturbance. This is a a, a managed dis- disturbance in the timber. So if if you have enough sunlight that comes down, imagine that that response that can come back after there's there's been livestock, there's been a little bit of soil disturbance rooting around. You know, this is this is the beauty and the connection that that we're hopefully going to make with everybody listening. Same thing with the chickens and the garden itself. There are ways to go about producing your own food on your own property. Um, but when you work with Mother Nature and allow it to allow, you know, yourself to be educated on, on the processes that, that it goes through every single season. You know, you talked about, you know, this spring or, or a lot of springs just in your area, sometimes they're short. So sometimes that, that spring garden isn't as good as, as this year because we had a longer spring or that bolting aspect. And, and you know, you're identifying the um, times of the year where things grow better. Um, and this is a summer forage versus versus a fall garden forage. Once you're able to understand those processes and the timing of everything and, and know how the natural world works, it's extremely rewarding to be able to find an acre and a half on your property, I'm sure, to say, I produced all of this in this small area for my family. And so that then I can not only educate my young kids, but then also bring community people out here and share that experience with them as well. And and you, even even the consultation, and I really appreciate this, the consultation day, you brought several friends out and said, hey, I am... I want them to learn from from this opportunity as well, and so you're you're you know teaching um, or or uh, you're inviting people to learn about things is one awesome and and very honorable, but two, you know it, it matches the whole homesteading side of things that you're doing as well. And um, how many other gardens do you think have been produced? Let's say through through you do you introducing other people. In your area, oh my, it, oh my goodness, it's uh, it's it's funny because we have uh, there's some friends that I had back in middle school that I've stayed, I I haven't stayed in touch with, uh-huh. and just through posting pictures and doing that kind of stuff is like, these people are just fueled by it, or they're oh, just yeah. like, it's like, man, I got to get out there and do that. So there's there's definitely that close knit of people that I got a couple of buddies, like one buddy doing a vineyard, another guy doing. Um, homesteading stuff but in you know uh a little bit of a different realm in terms of what he's planting and things and just and i got another buddy on uh just under an acre who's just going crazy with gardens and it's just uh my i want to undo my sister's garden my mom's still got her garden it's just everybody everybody's just comes out and sees it and it's just like phenomenal right and actually today father's day happy to happy father's day to everybody but my my father-in-law is help me plant the garlic back in November, and today we're going to go out and harvest it all. Oh, that's cool! And and just like for them to see that full circle, you know, it's that they live in the 
pretty much in the heart of DC. And it's uh-huh. just like to be able to experience that is, is just awesome. So oh, one more, one, one more quick thing about the pigs yes. and because I, I move them so often, guess what they leave behind and they don't eat the invasive. Even the pigs don't the, like well, it. Yeah. Multi-floor rows. They just like, yeah. they might lay underneath of it or like, uh, like any of the wine berries and stuff, they'll knock it down. But they're like, "All right, we're done here, bud. Keep moving, me." You know. That's funny. So, that's but funny. it's just, I saw it after our consultation. I'm like, "Yeah." So that's what they're leaving behind, hey, suckers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to be able to find something that's gonna forage on, but even even pasture pigs, they won't do it. And, and maybe yeah. maybe yeah. you'd try goats. I, I bet you goats would, yeah. would clean that up because I I've I've been a part of some um, areas that have been goated off. For, for invasive species control, and they don't leave really anything behind. But it's funny, the, yeah. the pigs, they turn their, their nose up at it, which is rare for a pig to do. But, um, yeah. man, it, it's yeah. – what what other things, as a guy who, who implements this, would you would you tell to anybody else, um, encourage them, um, or or things maybe that, that – you know, another way to tie it back to land legacy – um, what are some other things that you have learned from the experience of, of homesteading that you could say has helped you to better grasp and understand maybe a broader reach of things, maybe maybe the um, you know, understanding forestry or understanding um, early successional plants? You even sprayed um, some cool season grasses out, and now you're watching that, that flush of early successional plants come back and deer just pound them. So how has that connection to homesteading allowed you to better understand um, the principles behind what, what it is that, that we commonly talk about here on the podcast? Yeah. I mean, it's just so full circle. Like it's just, it's just crazy. So everything just really crosses over really well. And so like you're saying, we sprayed the cool season grasses and just seeing the response from that, um, the, and and seeing the response from the pigs disturb, disturbance and you even made a comment when you're looking at disturbance dis- disturbance after the chickens was wow like this is a lot of natives that are coming back and this is yeah, a lot totally. of you know it's it's got a night uh, boost of nitrogen because they're on it and then uh, it's done for the year and that all grow up and be a part of habitat for wildlife and things and so where the pigs have been in the sunlight it's recovered and like you're saying in the woods where they are it'll recover by next year so that they can be in there again and it's just not that much space no, but i think the know. biggest thing how it all connects is just the the drive and the desire to improve the land and mm. to understand it and so i my kids go to bed at seven thirty. right now it doesn't get dark and the chickens don't go up until eight thirty nine o'clock and i just I run around with my phone and take pictures on the iNaturalist and we just, my wife and I go on walks and we're just like, what's that? What's that? What's uh-huh. that? And just, just understanding it. And she's like, is that a native? I'm like, come on, babe. I don't know all this yet, you know, <laughs> but yeah. it's just, it's just like, you know, just understanding it all. We, we walked in a park with friends yesterday and I was like, oh, it's a spice bush. Let me go grab it. And I'm like, here, man, smell this. And he's oh, like, man, funny. it smells pretty cool. I'm like, that's a spice bush. And it's just like sharing that, connecting with people mm-hmm. just understanding what's around you and really just enjoying that 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 time i mean excuse me at the end of, end of our our consultation it was just like perfect time my kids walked out 
And it was just like, you know, this is why I do it. You know, my, Absolutely. we had the binoculars out. My daughter was watching two fawns and the, and the doe in the field. And it's just, it's just really awesome to be kind of a part of it all. And, and really just kind of see how it all, all really ties together. It's not a one track mind to a, a big buck or a one track mind, to a chicken or a pig. It's, it's all kind of all tied together. They can work cohesively. Like, like it, yeah. there's not, there's not like this. You have to choose. You have to be a crop farmer. You have to be a cattle farmer. You have to be a homesteader. Do whatever you want. Because, because sure. if you, if you approach land management and you understand land again in the natural world, I hate repeating myself a lot, but, but it's what it boils down to. If you understand those processes, you realize that there's way a ton of overlap in the way that all these things can work together. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of times people get frustrated and they get um, going down a wrong track and they have all these failures or, or just um, the roadblocks we talked about before. And they have those because maybe the approach or the lack of understanding of, of, of basic, let's say biological principles or the way things just the natural world works. Maybe, maybe maybe the foundation wasn't wasn't super solid that you built um, or or try to do all these practices on, but but we kind of revert back to just the way things typically operate. You can find that you can have pigs, you can have a garden, you can have chickens, you can have turkeys, you can have deer, and incredible opportunities to hunt and harvest all of those things on thirty acres in yep. in the suburbs of Maryland, and like <laughs> yeah. it's possible. And, it could, and I say the suburbs of Maryland, but it could be the suburbs of, of Indianapolis or the suburbs of, of Atlanta or the rural piece in Missouri. It doesn't matter where you're at. It's all possible. It is all possible if you just work the land appropriately. So that is that is the connection. That is the full circle of, of why it's important to, to talk about this. Share your experiences in a way that, that you're utilizing land in, in a, a slightly different way, but, but one that is still... I mean, we're, we're parallel. We're running, we're running side by side in, in achieving similar things, um, but just in a different way. You know, you're going to hunt and you're going to kill, hopefully, you know, a couple of those and, and a great buck and have those experiences shared and provide more meat for the family. Us hunters, we're, we're, we're very um, driven to provide that, that meat aspect for, for the family. Um, but gosh, there's so many other ways to provide that and know where the food comes from. And, and you've, you've showcased that today extremely well. I appreciate your time coming on the podcast and, um, man, it's been good. I, I hope, and I know this is your hope as well because of the people you bring onto the property, but I, I really just hope that people say, wow, I could, I could do that. You've got a full-time job. Your wife's got a full-time job. You've got young kids. Like, yeah, there's, there's time and devotion, but again, no one has to go to the scale that you're at to start sure. with and, and get, right. you know, you can get there. Same thing with, with, let's just say prescribed fire. You know, I, I don't expect people to go out and burn 90 acres, you know, every, every, um, spring at the, as they're just getting started, start small, start, start very small, learn it and work your way up to it. But you're not going to get there if you don't start. And and hopefully this is another way that people can start to work and understand the land, have some great food, um, have some fun with, with family. And I'm sure your kids, um, advance-wise, are going to be that much further ahead in understanding just 
life in general, let's say, because there's, there's learning experiences outside of just, okay, I plant something and it grows. Like there's, there's many more, um, illustrations that you could make by, by having that right out your front door, let's say in life and in principles. So, um, and it's just so cool, but I, I, uh, I'll let you kind of finish up and, and say the last few words of encouragement for anybody out there listening. Yeah, I think you just were hitting it pretty good as well is that really just start with something that you like, you know, start with a raised bed in your backyard, start with strawberries or whatever really is just something that you're like, man, I, I mean, I say strawberries, there's nothing like a fresh cooked strawberries, no, <laughs> but just no. like start with something that is small, start with something that is really enjoyable to you, go plant a fruit tree yesterday and and just see see the see how it transform things transforms things see how it it connects your kids to the property and to you and just just share it with people and really just be 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 a part of just educating yourself better on 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 your whole property it's just it's just phenomenal to watch it's phenomenal to be a part of and we're just really thankful that uh you all land legacy we're really just kind of our next step in it and it's just it was what we needed. It's the knowledge that we need and our plan's not done. And it's not, you know, it's, it's far from being uh perfect uh, land, but we're, we're going to work on it and we're going to make it uh, that much better for the next generation. So, and by the way, everything is fueled by Niagara coffee. That stuff's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you heard so, it straight from the mouth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got, I got quite the, quite the uh, father's day haul. So nice. uh, coffee and coffee, uh, start small, uh, really just enjoy it and, and get knowledge where you can and take advantage of a lot of opportunities that, uh, you know, come your way. Just, just jump at them. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get off of here. I've taken too much of it already, but man, it was a fantastic podcast. Enjoy your father's day and, um, thank you, ma'am. Thanks so much. Man, that is a special podcast. I, I have, uh, after seeing the farm there that Daniel Adams' family is producing, uh, man, I was just so excited to be able to get him on the podcast. And I hope you guys loved it. I, I really would like to hear your feedback on on that um, that topic, that content. What you guys thought? So be sure um, on social media to to let us know what you thought. Um, email in and uh, just let us know because because that's that's super exciting, something different. Um, but again, there's there's so many parallels as we talk about. Um, we, oh shoot, we could talk for another three hours if, if we wanted to on the, the different things that he's doing um, there on, on the farm. But um, if you guys want to to learn more, I definitely encourage you to go follow him on Instagram. It's up and Adams Farm. Up in Adam's farm, search him, follow him. You'll see a ton of different photos um, of him and his family working the garden, the garden, the chickens, the pigs, everything, um, kind of top to bottom. And, and, and just remember, that's happening all within an acre and a half of, of that his house sits on. Um, so you don't have to devote, um, you know, a lot of a lot of room or, or land to. Um, producing that much food for for your family, so it's um, awesome content, awesome to see, guys. So really appreciate um, Daniel's time, and um, as well as Kevin's. What a what a fantastic um, group of guys from Maryland, and, and that's such a such an incredible thing that we don't talk a lot about. It's just the 
the people that we're able to meet. And uh, it's certainly special for Adam and I um, and, and Frank and Kyle to be able to travel around the country and um, meet fantastic people who, who enjoy the land. Maybe they enjoy the land a little differently than, than we do, um, but, but it's definitely um, a fantastic way to build relationships with, with great people um, and learn so many different things. There's definitely an exchange of, of information um, and education along the way. So um, we love that, and we love you guys for listening, and um, we, we certainly appreciate it. So if you guys have questions, um, be sure to reach out on social media. Follow along social media um, as well as YouTube, and um, we'd love to to have you guys um, check out all the videos that are getting dropped there on YouTube as well as social media. Um, if you have questions on consulting, be sure to go to www.landlegacy.tv. Click on the consulting tab, and there is a way for you guys to um, send in requests through that webpage and um, send in your information. We'd be happy to talk with you guys. And um, thank you so much for listening. But first, before we leave, we need to give a shout out to FirstLight.com. Sitting here wearing the Guide Light shorts from First Light. Super comfortable got them this week, and um, I am loving them. Loving every aspect of them. Uh, tons of different pockets, lightweight, um, and water beads up on them very quickly. So um, I don't know if they're waterproof or not, but, man, I, I stayed certainly dry um, out on the lake this week. So be sure to check out firstlight.com. And, guys and girls, thank you so much for listening. Another very special podcast this week has Adam and I break down why we love land. We talked so much about it in different ways, but we haven't ever devoted a ton of time just directly to that um, topic. And you might be surprised um, at the different things as, as we definitely go um, deep into that subject and just kind of um, are very open about it. So be sure to check out the other podcasts this week. I think you guys will, will certainly love it. But uh, thank you for your time. We will see you guys next week. Yeah.